and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Foreign Policy and Diplomacy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, we're coming back to a topic that we seem to almost once a month now uh, discuss, and it's just we don't actually intentionally seek this topic out. It just kind of hits us over the head. And of course, we're talking about ivory and the contentious relationship that the Chinese have with Africa over the consumption of, of, of ivory, both you know ivory from elephants and then rhino horn, which I've been corrected several times, Cobus, that uh, rhino horn is technically not ivory. So I think we should make that uh, that distinction right here. Nonetheless the effects of the killing uh, are the same, which is we're basically pushing the population of both rhinos and elephants across Africa uh, towards extinction. Uh, some species of rhino have already, I think the black rhino now is already extinct. I Please, conf- you know, don't quote me on that. I, d- I don't think so. I think it's critically endangered. Critically endangered. Okay. But it's getting yeah. very, very close. Um, nonetheless, we had a development this past week which was very interesting, and that was a woman by the name of Chen uh, Chen. She was uh, traveling from Nairobi to to China, and she was stopped at the airport with, you know, what looks like dozens of packs of macadamia nuts. And inside those macadamia nut packages was uh, was 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 ivory that she was trying to smuggle out. And uh, and a court gave a sentence of two years and seven months. Now, Cobus, two years and seven months is certainly more than what we've seen in the past. But is this cause for celebration? Well, you know, kind of the press went crazy pretty much and said, this is amazing and land, landmark ruling. And, uh, um, I think, you know, kind of compared to the previous, um, previous case where uh, a Chinese citizen got caught with 400 pieces of, of, of ivory that apparently was the size of a finger. So looking a little bit like, you know, for, for small, I think probably made for name stamps. Um, and he got away with $350 fine. So I think compared to that, it's pretty, it's, it's quite a, a landmark, but you know, objectively speaking, it's nothing. Yeah, I thought I, th- I think it's a joke. I mean, you know, in writing in the the Guardian newspaper, and this kind of surprised me to be honest with you, uh, under the Africa Wild column, uh, Paula Kahumbu, uh, who apparently, as you say, is very well known in wildlife circles, uh, she wrote, "quote The Kenyan public have much to celebrate with this case," and and I just was kind of shaking my head because. Two years and seven months prison term is not going to deter anybody when you're talking about a, a commodity that is more valuable than gold and cocaine. I mean, the, 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 the risk of getting caught is, is still nothing. And so here's the fundamental issue, because in the discussions that we have on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, everybody makes the Chinese out to be the asshole here. Now, Chinese demand uh, for ivory is, in many respects, to me, unforgivable. And the fact that the Chinese government has not done anything to really slow the demand. Moreover, the Chinese you know, senior wildlife officials have said they're not responsible for any of it. So let's take the Chinese off the table. But my question to you is there's an African complicity in this as well. Why aren't the laws tougher? Why aren't African laws, Kenyan laws, more stringent that catch these people and throw them behind bars for a long, long time? to make the price very high, which has nothing to do with the Chinese. Why is that, do you think? Um, I think, you know, part of it is because in the past, um, you know, the, 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 the scientist ban seemed, seemed to be working for a while, I think, before, before the demand shot up in, in, in Asia. So I think for, you know, kind of, I think the, the African governments were kind of caught a little bit unawares, you know, kind of when, when the demand suddenly started shooting up again. But at the moment, there is moves um, in Kenya 
for a new bill that will make the fines 120 to 200 thousand um, dollars, and then also there is there's, uh, the Kenyan Wildlife Service is calling for life imprisonment. Um, so you know, kind of this is interesting. I mean, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see whether they get it. I'm, I'm doubtful, but um, even if you know, kind of say it's a situation like you know, like like in Asia, where if you get caught for drugs smuggling drugs um, in East Asia, you know, kind of in, in certain countries, it's it's mandatory death sentence. That's right. Do you think that will be? Well, do you think that'll be a real deterrent? Do you well, think that will stop people, or do you think people just won't think, just don't think they they'll get caught? Well, I mean, I'm here in Vietnam, and uh, last week the headlines was that a Nigerian man uh, is going to be put to death for smuggling heroin out of Vietnam. So clearly, the the stakes, you know, there's so much money to be made. The stakes have to be very, very high. I do think that smuggling drugs out of Southeast Asia, whether it's Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, or Vietnam, uh, people do think twice about because the the penalties are are really unconditional and unforgivable. There's not much of a court case that you make in Singapore when you're smuggling heroin uh, or any kind of you know illicit drug. So, I, but that's a first step. But I think the debate needs to change, and this is what we kind of talk about on a number of different occasions: that Africa has to stop positioning itself as the victim here. That Africa has to, you know, the African governments in South Africa and Kenya and the people around the discussion need to step up and say, well, what can our governments do uh, right away? So your argument that they might have been caught off guard, yeah, okay, that was maybe one, two, three years ago. Uh, we're, we're in a crisis stage now with the survivability of these animals. And if something isn't done on at least one side or the other, and what I've advocated for is that the Chinese have to feel there's a big political price in order to put this on their agenda. Right now, there's nothing to motivate the Chinese leadership to, to, to install a ban on ivory simply because they've got so many other issues that they need to deal with. So until that, is, until that happens, it's, it's up to the African side to take the initiative. Who in Kenya do you believe – because you said you don't believe that the Kenyan Wildlife Service proposal – to have you know much string, string, much more stringent sentencing and, and fines will pass. Who in Kenya uh, or in South Africa is defending the, the the hunt or you know or opposing you say these mandatory minimum sentences that would be very high? Well, you know, kind of, I I. I wouldn't say that I have any real insight into the Kenyan the Kenyan situation. You know, kind of. I mean, they might pass. You know, it just it, it seems like you know to to move from two and a half years to life imprisonment seems like a big jump for me. Um, but you know, what what's interesting for me is that um, in Kenya there seems to be a shift now because in the past, um, you know, obviously the debate has been pushed a lot. The anti-poaching debate has been pushed a lot by wildlife conservation groups. Um, so you know, I think there was a in South Africa, definitely, um, and in other parts of Africa, there was a, a certain kind of way of seeing it as a little bit of a sentimental kind of Western concern. Um, but the Kenyan government is now, um, you know, kind of characterizing it as economic sabotage. Um, so they're talking about um, that you know, the wildlife sector, the tourism sector, uh, which is obviously very wildlife-based in Kenya, um, employs 300,000 Kenyans, and that um, that any kind of poaching of elephants and rhinos 
is sabotage of a, a crucial Kenyan economic sector. So, you know, kind of to, to, to put it in that way, I think, pushes, makes it more possible to, to um, you know, kind of to, to muster a bunch of new resources um, to, to stop it because it becomes less of like, oh, we need to save these majestic animals and more like we are being personally attacked. Well, what it does is it puts actually a constituency behind the fight, and the constituency is the tourism industry and all the people who depend on tourism uh, who, to, you know, because, you know, frankly, you know, when the average American or the average European thinks of Africa, they still think of the Lion King. <laughs> and, and without any lions and without any elephants and rhinos, that does present a problem for projecting that image. So there is some legitimacy to that. But I want to go back to this, this, this you know, Chen Biame, you know, this woman who got caught and is now sitting in a, in a Kenyan in jail. Um, ironically, they said just a couple blocks down the street from the uh, Chinese embassy, so, <laughs> which I found rather interesting that if she screams loud enough, somebody might hear her. Uh, but, you know, this really reminded me of, you know, every once in a while, the United States Drug Enforcement Agency, you know, they have these wonderful photo ops where they, you know, have piles of cocaine, and they say, look at what we've done. And, and what the analysts will tell you is that they catch the dumb and the slow. It's like the lion and the gazelle. Um, you, you know, this is not symbolic of any more effect law enforcement. It's not symbolic of any more effective, you know, crackdowns or campaigns. She got caught because, well, she might have, you know, had a, a bad day. She had a bad, you know, method of exporting. Um, but at the end of the day, the amount that she was smuggling out was insignificant compared to the haul that we saw out of Hong Kong, what, no less than three, four weeks ago, of 1,100 tusks. And that was being done by a Nigerian guy. So again, what I really want to get away from is this name-blaming of, you know, it's the Chinese or it's the Africans, because frankly, there's money in it for everybody, and everybody's got their hands dirty. Um, there really are not very many clean hands in this, in that sense. So, you know, what's your thought on what what the the optics of this of this image is? Do you think this should instill faith? I mean, going back to the column we saw in in the Guardian from uh, from Paula Kaumbu, should we be excited about this, or do you share my skepticism that this is really, you know, kind of depressing that this is what they're celebrating a two year seventh month sentence on a you know basically an individual you know smuggling it out of her inner suitcase. Yeah, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I think you know there's there's not nearly enough to, you know discussion within Africa about the the kind of African networks that make this possible because it's not only um, you know kind of poachers that that you know poor poachers that then attack and then kind of you know find some kind of shadowy person to sell to. These are organised gangs. They have they have um, night vision equipment. They have automatic weapons. They are they are equipped. Um, and you know, there's been um, investigative journalism pieces in South Africa that that said that certain uh, you know kind of heads of of wildlife preserves, not government-owned wildlife preserves, but but private game farms in South Africa are um, are involved in rhino horn smuggling rings. Um, so you know, they, they, I think there is a lot of of kind of uh, anecdotal proof so far um, of uh, you know at least you know kind of a lot of a lot of strong indications that African society is itself involved in this and you know and and it, it frequently goes right to the top um, with, with with the same problem with with illegal timber as well um, and African governments are not really taking the kind of responsibility that they should no and this was this is not just even speculation Jeffrey Gettleman who's one of the New York Times correspondents in Africa he did a series of reports last year which 
which were absolutely bone-chilling. I mean, they really were. Uh, and he talks about clearly how the militarization of the poaching business, and that's being done by African militaries. It's being done by uh, organized crime. Uh, and again... This is where the debate gets messy because, you know, the Chinese don't actually have to be on the ground to kill the elephants, uh, just the same way that the Americans don't have to be on the ground in Colombia to, 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 to far harm, uh, harvest the cocaine itself. Um, they are benefiting from a system that other people are, 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 you know, are engaging in a very violent trade. Uh, but nonetheless, I really encourage you to search under the New York Times for Jeffrey Gettleman. He wrote a piece in September of last year called Africa's Elephants Are Being Slaughtered in Poaching Frenzy. And there he details just exactly the role that organized crime and corruption within government and militaries is playing in all of this to really kind of highlight how complex a story this is. Um, so what's the takeaway, in your opinion, from, from this latest story? Does, do, we, do you have any more optimism that the tide may be turning, at least on the public opinion side? Or is there as much indifference in Africa as there is in China to the issue? Because, you know, for more and more as Africa urbanizes, they're not coming in contact with wildlife the same way. They may not even be coming in contact with the tourism business the same way. And so is there political pressure within Kenya, South Africa, uh, you know, Mozambique and these other places that where elephants, you know, and, and rhinos uh, live to actually install effective protection? I think um, in certain ways, in a kind of paradoxical way, urbanization might actually make people more sympathetic to these issues because, you know, kind of um, as more Africans move into middle class, middle class, you know, incomes, the middle class tends to be worried about, about conservation. Um, I think, you know, kind of even put, like poor Africans who live in, in rural areas, I don't think they really necessarily get to face to face with wildlife either um, because, you know, the, like the wildlife that, that you do see in, I mean, the, this is obviously very different in different regions, but you know, kind of certainly in South Africa, there is no wildlife in the rural South Africa. You know, kind of they 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 disappeared, you know, decades ago. So um, the you know, so as I think, um, in in a weird way, the kind of the the media exposure to these issues increase the more urbanised, the more middle class the population becomes. Um, you know, kind of so it's interesting to see that in Kenya um, there is there seems to be um, po- po- some kind of popular resistance to poaching now. And some of it seems also to be pushed by ad campaigns. And there seems to be a certain, you know, these ad campaigns have an effect and there is a lot of popular kind of um, anger about these issues. And that popular anger apparently was one of the issues that pushed the judge to to apply a heavier sentence in this case. So, you know, kind of that might be the way to do it. You know, it's funny, though, because we've seen the, the, how closely Chinese social media follows some events in Africa, particularly as it relates to hostage-taking and the killing uh, and the violence against Chinese migrants who are in Africa. And it would be interesting to see if that, if that judge in Kenya, you know, put a 40-year sentence on this woman, you know, what kind of reaction that would have on Weibo and some of the other places. And that might be the way to get public opinion in China to shift, is that if more and more Chinese are actually be putting, being put in jail for very, very long time, Time under very harsh conditions, uh, and word will get out to the, at least maybe to the Chinese. You know, I could see Weibo erupting with indignation to say, you know, what the hell? You know, why are you putting our people away? But if that then brings up the conversation of, well, you know what, they're going away because you're trafficking in a, a you know a product that is killing elephants and rhinos. You know, that might be worth it. So we'd like to hear what you think. We know this is one of the most sensitive and and really sensationalized topics and and complicated as you can see as well. 
uh, in the China-Africa relationship. It's one that will not be solved anytime soon. But uh, you know, having a robust debate is definitely the first and most important step. Uh, do you think the two-year, seven-month sentence was something that we should be celebrated, or do you kind of agree with what uh, Kobus and I are talking about? And how, in some ways, it's kind of depressing, frankly, that that's considered progress. Um, you know, so what, what what are your thoughts on this? You know, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, we'd love to hear from you. Best place to reach us is on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, I tweet almost every day at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And Kobus, if people want to find you on Twitter, what's the best way? I am at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find both Kobus and I on our Facebook page. We put our names in brackets so you actually know who you're talking to. Uh, but, you know, if you want to listen to the podcast, you can find us on the web at SoundCloud.com. Just look for China Africa Project. Uh, iTunes is really the best way, though. And you can, uh, you know, just look us up on using your iTunes account. Uh, there you'll also find our mobile apps, which you can follow our Facebook and Twitter feeds, as well as uh, our podcast podcast as well and the also if you're on the blackberry network around the world but particularly in south africa uh, you can find us streaming there as well so lots of different places to find us Uh, we'll be back again with another edition of the china and africa podcast Uh, thank you so much for listening 